Welcome. This is season three of The Daily Market, where we've decided to do something a little special. Earlier this year, startup junkie and marketplace master Ty Wolf-Jones, hey Ty, approached me and pitched us the idea of instead of interviewing founders and marketers, why don't we dive into the world of marketplaces, the VH1 behind the music of marketplaces, or what is the making of the sausage of a marketplace? Ty could bring the operations point of view, and I could bring the marketing point of view, and we could make some marketplace magic, or maybe a little more like Marketplace Mayhem. So join us for the series where we've spoken to over a dozen marketplace leaders and pioneers from Uber, Convoy, Bellhop, DoorDash, Rover, but also some rising stars and marketplaces from multiple countries, venture capitalists, and more. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Ladies and gents, this is our episode with Peter Shu. Who is Peter? Peter is the founder and CEO of a stealthy company we can't really mention much about yet. But more importantly, over the course of six and a half years, Peter has served as a general manager and COO for some of the most beloved marketplaces with a proven track record to back it as a successful operator. He was the former COO of Bellhops, a full-service moving marketplace operating in over 40 cities, where he supercharged growth to 2.5x annual growth rate and switched from a negative to a positive contribution margin. Pretty impressive. Before this, Peter served as a general manager of Uber Eats for the Southeast region of the US, where he built Uber Eats from pre-revenue in Atlanta, just one city, to the dominant food delivery offering in the whole Southeast region. Yeah, this conversation was impressive and a lot of fun. Peter shares some tasty nuggets around successfully growing a marketplace, along with the added complexity of that third side. He was at Uber when it went from two-side to a three-sided marketplace and got to learn that intimately. So stay tuned for that, as well as diving deep into things like hiring for leaving velocity, steps to marketplace flywheel, being supply constrained, and how marketplaces are their own form of magic. You know, this is a great episode. I think it'll be particularly valuable for anyone who wants to learn from an experienced operator. Maybe you're a product manager, maybe you're a founder, and you're interested in looking at the food delivery space, transportation space. Any of those B2B marketplaces, Peter has some really, really cool wisdom for you. It's a bon appetit. If you like what you heard, why don't you leave a review? You don't need to subscribe or anything, but we really want to hear from you. So leave a review if you can and enjoy. Enjoy. Peter, thanks a ton for coming on the show. Hey, great to be here, Jacob. So we got got Ty Wolf Jones here in recovery, and we got... Peter Shu. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Yeah, that's right. Like you're wearing. Peter Shu. I thought we'd start with a story that was, I, I heard it was internationally shared, like outside of America too, but that was sort of, who was Walter Carr? Yeah. Okay. So as soon as you started, you know, you mentioned that I, I knew where you were going. Um, I, I haven't thought about this. It is really an incredible story. Walter Carr was a mover on the Bellhop platform. And he had a move scheduled. And if I remember his, what happened was he, he was supposed to work a move uh, the next day. 
and something happened with his car. His car broke down. You know, I guess maybe as context, you know, when you're moving, it's pretty high stakes, right? On the customer side. In some cases, you have a legal obligation to vacate the premises that day, but at a minimum, it's this incredibly stressful experience. And so we just emphasize, you know, all of the guys, all of the movers, just how important it is that, that you show up and show up on time. So, so Walter's car, uh, broke down. He realized he wasn't going to get, be able to get to work. He realized that meant he wasn't going to be able to work. And there was a customer who was going to be let down. And so he said, well, I guess I better get walking. And so he set out, I want to say around like midnight or one in the Mm -hmm. morning to go be there for a early morning move. And along the way, uh, actually got picked up by a member of the local police department uh, who was like, why is there this random guy walking along the side of the highway in the middle of the night? Right. You know, this was a couple of years ago. So, but, you know, Walter's African-American. And as you can imagine, this being the South, relationships between African-Americans and the police have not always been super Mm -hmm. awesome. And instead of going South into something horrible, it ended up being this really heartwarming story. The officer, uh, you know, Walter shared what he was doing with the officer walking to work from really far away. I don't remember the name of the town. Uh, The officer actually took him out to breakfast, bottom breakfast, and then drove him to the move. And then he and the crew just delivered this fantastic move to the customer along the way. The customer found out his story about how he actually got there. uh, And she publicized it and it started getting picked up with some, you know, some, we we heard about it over the wire and Luke, our CEO uh, at Bellhop at the time, you know, he was like so moved that this guy would, you know, walk, work that hard to take care of a customer and to make sure he showed up for his job that he drove down there and gave Walter his car uh, mm. so that he wouldn't find himself in that situation again. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just the, the whole story, every aspect of it. I, I mean, it's it, it's been a little while since I've thought about that, but but it's still a story that kind of moves me a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot of puns built into that story. You know, Walter Carr, he didn't have a car. Yeah, um, things could have gone south, but they went north, right? <laughs> yeah. Like lots of real interesting things. I, I guess I wanted to follow that up with. So, how do you think you go? You find a Walter? Like Walter's someone who has this servant leadership. I mean, that's some incredible self accountability and ownership that he has. And something right about you is that you like leading high performing teams. So, like, how do you? More of the question is, how do you people pick, Peter? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, first. On a high-performing team, there's a cultural element, right? And so you have to be in a culture where certainly people individually have certain traits that they're going to bring to work. Um, but high performance also exists in the context of the culture. Uh, in terms of picking individual people, you know, I, I think really the, the one thing that I've found is the importance of hiring for learning velocity. At a startup, you're doing inherently new things. And so it can be somewhat challenging. You can't just select for experience, right? Because if there was someone with deep domain experience in doing exactly what you're doing, then you probably wouldn't be a high growth startup, right? And that's not just say that, mm-hmm. you, you know, you could bring people in with adjacent startup experience for some of your, you know, functional areas like legal or finance. Like, you know, yes, let's not just hire for learning velocity. Let's find, you know, hire someone who's done it before. But for a lot of your core business functions, you really want to bring in people who, who, who demonstrate that learning velocity during the hiring process and then give them the opportunity to grow with the organization. And that's really how you're going to build, you know, your key anchors and your key pillars, um, you know, both at the individual contributor and leadership level. 
it's how you grow together, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, company growth and personal growth. Yeah, I agree. I, I actually got my chance at working in marketplace startups by someone doing that exact thing for me at, at Rover. So I stand behind it and I guess I, I hope I get the chance to pass it along too, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. And they were called bellhops if they were a mover, right? Yeah, that's right. Did did they do something to get tips? Was tips expected? What's what's what was the culture around that? Yeah, I think so. People ask that a lot. Uh, you know, do people tip the movers? I think the normal, like when someone spends hours in the hot sun, you know, moving heavy things for you. I think the like normal human response is to tip. Whether your movers are bellhops or not, I would recommend tipping them. We did actually have, especially early on, the company. You know, this is part about getting the flywheel going in a marketplace was the company would research customers and then equip the bellhops with that information uh, around like so-and-so, you know, based on its social media presence. Yeah. Is a, you know, such and such a team fan uh, is a Falcons fan. And then, you know, and so then the, then the guys would show up, you know, maybe with like Falcons gear. And and so kind of creating that, 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 that personal touch to show uh, to really kind of bring the extra wow to the experience. So what was the craziest thing you ever heard a bell, bell hop, bell hops, plural, do to get better tips? Is, is there anything unique? Or to, I mean, that Falcon one's a great example. Yeah, I think I'm trying to remember. I think there was one around someone who had like, this was before, before I joined the company, to, to be fair. I think it was around someone who had been recently engaged and they, they got, I don't remember exactly what it was they brought, but they somehow figured out that they'd been engaged and did something special for the couple on that move. I, it, it was a little more than flowers. I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was. Yeah. Maybe they threw like a pie in their face or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, congrats. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause, cause I, I really like the bellhop values of there's three cultural values that they look for in their bellhops, right? There's the servant's heart, the innovator's mind and the winning drive. And when you put all this together, it's like, you could have a really great experience from people that are making you feel like, you know, they're going to do a really great job for you and potentially build a relationship with you, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It, it's a very intimate experience having people in your home uh, for an extended period of time t- touching and handling all your things. And so it can go really well and it can go really poorly. Uh, and, and I think setting that cultural foundation, you know, which really exists at the city level is a big part of making things go well. Mm-hmm. And Bellhop is a two-sided marketplace. Is that right? Well, that's interesting. It's it, 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 for the there is a third side actually, which is the carrier. And so, Bellhops in 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 some cases brokers out the transportation portion of the uh, carrier of, being of the truck. The, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. The carrier being the truck. And so, in some cases, the the truck is brokered, especially for long distance moves. So. But and so all three of those sites matter from a supply availability standpoint, from a marketplace performance standpoint, the area where you get the most differentiation is obviously on the labor side. So how is a three-sided marketplace different, harder, easier than than, than a, a two-sided perhaps? Yeah, I think three is definitely harder. It's like taking something in two dimensions and adding a third. Uh, it definitely gets more complex. What's interesting is usually there's still only going to be one side that the money is coming from, 
that's been my observation or experience, right? There's still only one customer side. And so now you end up with multiple supply sides. And so to the extent that, you know, marketplaces try to balance supply and demand, you know, you have an added layer of complexity in terms of balancing supply and demand. The other thing that happens, though, is that you end up with different types to the extent, you know, we saw this in Uber Eats where you end up with different types of supply bases. And so, you know, I, I remember early on in my time, you know, Uber Eats, obviously, you know, Uber came from ride sharing, two-sided, riders and drivers. Uh, you know, if you're an ops person, you're very focused on, on, the, on the driver's side. And I remember someone on my team at some point creating a slide that was titled, restaurants are not drivers, you know, and, and, and basically the point was that this side of the marketplace is completely different from a needs, wants, behaviors. They're not just not drivers, they're actually not people, right? They're businesses. Uh, and so the competency to manage a large driver organization and the competency to, or supply base and the competency to manage a large restaurant supply base it's not clear how much overlap there may actually be. And so that can dramatically increase the complexity in managing the marketplace. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think, you know, the, what we're trying to do here at, at Marketplace Mayhem is, is dig in a bit about some of these uh, dynamics that you, you've learned and, and some of the tips and tricks. Um, and I think it's really interesting that you got to see Uber, you know, switch from a two-sided marketplace, or, or I shouldn't say switch, but join the three-sided marketplace world at Uber Eats, and, and you were a regional general manager there in the South, you know, launching m- multiple cities, areas uh, uh, into this whole thing. It'd be awesome to start to dig in a little bit. Um, we, we've heard through the grapevine, you're building your own company as well. What are your early successful marketplace tips and tricks um, that you might give someone who's looking into uh, building a marketplace, two-sided or three-sided? So I think in a marketplace, you generally end up seeding the supply side. That's been my experience and observation. You, 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 it's more challenging to, you know, you can even think of to the extent OkCupid was a marketplace and they started out with quizzes. A- again, you know, the, the interesting thing about marketplaces is at the end of the day, no one actually likes being referred to as supply. And so, you know, certainly as you're engaging with your marketplace participants, you don't want to do that. Uh, if we want to think of dating as a marketplace and you know, knowing the functions of, you know, the, just kind of some of the realities of online dating, the female side often being the one that's in shorter uh, supply. You know, okay, Cupid was able to use, you know, the quizzes, right? You come there for the quizzes and then they sort of yeah. judoed you into, you know, a, a dating site, uh, which was maybe not why you were originally there. Um, so they were able to seed their supply base on both genders that way. You know, what I've learned kind of applying to my current company is just the importance of supply quality. And especially, especially early on, especially early on in things like before there's high levels of liquidity, especially early on before there's high levels of technology. And we saw that, uh, you know, very is really important for getting the flywheel going. You know, at Uber, that meant you want to launch with the best restaurants in town, right? Like you launch with, it's not about having 200 restaurants. It's about which 200 you actually have. At Bellhop, we saw you know, who is who are the initial crews that you hire and are they good? And what are the experiences that those customers have? Uh, and so for what we're doing, which is a local logistics business, you know, the, the quality on the supply side has been something that, that's been really important. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super interesting. So talk a little bit about about how to kind of build that quality right from the beginning. You're obviously 
making some assumptions based on what the customer needs. But uh, how are you measuring quality? How are you maintaining quality? How are you assuming quality right right out of the gate as you're building? So before you launch, you actually don't know what what you know what quality is going to be. I, I remember right. when we launched food delivery, we were looking at, you know, we thought maybe we'll look at restaurants with good Yelp ratings. It wasn't wasn't entirely clear. Over time, you learn, okay, food delivery is a game where people, you know, it turns out that like ambiance doesn't travel well on a cardboard box. Uh, and so food <laughs> delivery is a game where you want to have, you know, excellent food at a very aggressive price point, right? Because again, because cause the service and ambiance elements don't necessarily translate. Mm-hmm. And so, we we learned that over time. Initially, we were just literally going after you know kind of the best reputationally rated restaurants in town, uh, and we were fortunate that we had an objective measure. You know, when you're when you're bringing on movers, uh, when you're bringing on supply. In my current business, you know, you don't have necessarily objective measures. People don't, you know, human beings don't run around with a you know with a scorecard above their head, uh, and so you know it can come down to a much more subjective judgment. The thing is, the supply base and supply quality is so important for getting the flywheel spinning that it's worth kind of the extra upfront time investment in non-scalable processes and, you know, interactions, you know, to make sure that you actually get that right. Well, I think this is a little bit of that conversation we, we actually had previously, which was this idea that the operators in a business and a marketplace, especially have to be the ones that are out there executing, filling in gaps, you know, doing the thing to figure out some of these things. I think one of the comments you made earlier about moving people's personal stuff, right, is actually a really stressful, you know, having a stranger move your stuff can be stressful. Having to move it all is stressful. But taking that attitude that this is someone's personal things is something you probably had the people pick for, as you were talking about earlier, about trying to find those qualities. Because that's super interesting. And you probably can't learn that without being out there and doing it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You you know, it's, it really is worth kind of... I think that's why a lot of physical marketplaces have a launcher model, right? Mm-hmm. Where even if you don't plan to sustain the marketplace long run with physical presence, uh, you know, it's not just about kind of getting the initial on the ground logistics in place. It's also about, you know, really taking the time to curate the initial supply when you're bringing the business live. Right. What is the launcher model? Yeah. So if for most, you you know, I I think Uber, again, like kind of being one of the larger and companies in the category and the one that kind of set a lot of the model that ended up being used elsewhere um, would, when it was launching a new market, this goes back to ride sharing, not even food delivery would send someone who's called a launcher to that city. And the launcher would be, was responsible for, you know, basically bringing the, you know, taxi or ride sharing market live in that initial geography. And so they would do everything from, you know, set up what the initial geography was going to be. They're doing the, it's very, it's an interesting role because you're doing everything from like the technical configuration of like how the marketplace is going to work as in like what is the area we serve how much do people get paid for you know different rides so what is the pricing side obviously with you know input from specialist teams all the way down to like you know initial recruitment which could be as simple as jumping in the back of taxis and saying join me have you yeah join me right like hey how much do you pay to lease this you know medallion uh mm-hmm. have you considered mm-hmm. not doing that uh and so 
what's interesting about the launcher role though is that it kind of melds that like okay there are like physical things that we want to do to get this marketplace live long run i'm not meeting all my drivers face to face but initially that's that actually may be more efficient than just dumping thousands of dollars in paid marketing you know to promote something that no one has heard of uh but also there's you're applying a level of human judgment and mm-hmm. that is often hard to do remotely around setting the parameters of the initial marketplace and those and a lot of that comes down to things like setting up your service geography and i think you know when we launched our the initial uber eats business for example in atlanta like that understanding of the physical geography of the city which is hard to get by like just looking at census maps alone actually ends up being a big part of the success let me ask you what could be perceived as a stupid question, which is, I, I think maybe people listening to the show could think, okay, so Peter said quality supply is important. So why wouldn't a marketplace just have top quality, say like the top 10% that they found, and then they just cut out all the lower quality? Why, why is that not recommended or possible? Or maybe it is? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, so there's two answers to that. The first is that you don't always know who your best supply is going to be, right? So we didn't know, you know, who our best restaurants were going to be. It took a while to discover who the best delivery restaurants were. There was some correlation with their offline presence, um, but it wasn't 100%. If you're something like an Amazon, right, people may come in without a reputation. And so you may not, you know, be able to actually, in advance of allowing them to participate for some period of time, you may not actually know what their quality is, which is why, you know, and then so most marketplaces end up with some sort of quality metric and a process of offboarding folks who don't hit that measure. But beyond that, you know, you've got questions around like, okay, is it a variety of consumer taste question where, you know, there are different ways to deliver the service, food being a great example of that, where one person's awesome is another person's terrible. And then second, you know, in something like ride sharing, where you know, maybe there is less variation in, in you know, just kind of less variety in, in, in the type of service being performed. You know, you, you, you've got a trade-off between supply liquidity and, and quality, right? Where I could give everybody a 10% better driver, but what would that do to your ability to get a ride? Which, you know, at the end of the day is also an important part of the experience. Yeah, and I imagine you you cannot scale if you're only getting quality or it's going to be way too expensive to, to get get the quality or get everyone budget down to the quality people only, right? It's it 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 takes a long time to scale. It seems like it's a bit antithetical to how a startup operates. As in, it's okay if it's a little messy, and that includes if there's maybe some not not so great supply along the way. Yeah, I think a good analogy is is literally like a marketplace versus a store, right? Like th- and think of the physical world. Right. Like think about what a marketplace would look like in the physical world and then think about, you know, a high end department store also in the physical world. And, you know, the just just, you know, aside from, you know, even aside from the startup world, you think of like a marketplace, you think of the truly great ones. I remember going to, you know, we went to the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul during my honeymoon and, you know, got fleeced like all the other tourists. But it's just this like vibrant, noisy, chaotic, crazy place. Right. And then you go to a department store and it's like clean and organized. And so when you have a single person who is literally telling everyone exactly what to do and is the employer of record, then you achieve a certain level of order. Right. And, 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 but there are trade offs there where you may end up having 
less variety or you may end up having less scalability or you may end up being more specialized because that person is only an expert in certain areas. Whereas a marketplace, you get maybe more scalability because you get lots of individual entrepreneurs. You get maybe a, if it's valuable to you, you can get a greater variety of like taste and products. Um, but, but you do end up with a little bit of chaos. And I think that's unavoidable in, 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 in like literal physical marketplaces, like as in, you know, actual like bazaars and markets. But, but I think in digital marketplaces that especially those that involve the physical world and even those that don't, it is there, there's a certain amount of chaos that is just inherent with being in a marketplace because you are taking away an element of, you're surrendering an element of direct control in exchange for other things you want. Mm hmm. I work on the marketing side to get supply. So at Rover was to get pet sitters at assurance. It's to get licensed insurance agents. And whenever I think about someone having a bad experience because they're interacting with someone who's, what was I say, like a lower quality, lower grade insurance agent, it just makes me cringe. I'm just like, oh, you know, that's <laughs> one shopper that we're, we might be losing because they're not interacting with someone with, with quality. But like you said, there's trade-offs and you got to be okay making that and not going for perfection at the very beginning. Well, another thing I think you're kind of pointing to, and I'd love to hear a little bit of your experience, is this idea of when you do find that product market fit, when it does start to work, the shoppers, the people are coming to the marketplace, right? And they're like, this is something I like it. Here. <laughs> I dig this. I'm going to come back. I'm going to tell my friends. And you're getting that flywheel going, right? You've been in a couple places, Uber Eats, Bellhop, et cetera, where it sounds like you've gotten to see this flywheel either working or be discovered. How do you discover that? How do you start to figure out um, any insights there uh, from your experience? Yeah, you mean in terms of like what gets the flywheel spinning, like understanding yeah. your levers. Or even there. how do you find it in this chaos that you said you're yeah. building? You're trying to throw everything out there in this marketplace. You're trying to figure out quality. You're curating some of your supply. But you even said you didn't necessarily make the right assumptions right out of the gate. But eventually Uber Eats did, right? They started to take off um, where others didn't. So what was that? How, how did you make that discovery? How did you get to those first, first even inklings of a flywheel? So I think understanding your flywheel comes down to understanding the sides of your marketplace. That's step one is first, you actually have to understand, you know, at Eats, we actually have to say like, hey, we're in a three-sided marketplace, right? Okay, like today that's obvious, you know, when we started, maybe less so. Right. Okay, so it's step one is what are the sides of your marketplace? And then the best way to get to how you're going to get your flywheel started is to try to understand how those sides of the marketplace interact with each other. And so, for example, Eats, you know, with Uber Eats, it was about understanding that, okay, so, so you know, to sort of run through all sides of the marketplace, right? Okay, so eaters, eaters, we discover, are primarily driven by selection, right? That is, that is, I open the app and I see food I want or I see or I don't see food I want. And that is the primary thing that drove eaters. And again, our initial hypothesis was that it was speed. Right. Like that was, you know, a very Uber way to think about things. And it turns out speed didn't, you know, speed doesn't matter that much. Okay. So eaters are primarily influenced by selection, which means I need lots of selection, selection being restaurants. Right. Uh, okay. Restaurants. Restaurants are primarily, uh, having an iPad and an extra thing to worry about inside your restaurant is like reasonably disruptive. Right. Especially, especially if it's, something you don't engage with very often. Uh, I used to, we had a member on my team who came from the restaurant world and she used to joke that, Busy kitchens make fewer mistakes, 
which is that when people are actually like doing something over and over and they're active and they're busy, uh, then things tend to go better. So, so if you're giving a restaurant an order every three days, that iPad probably gets put in the drawer and turned off. And then, you know, yeah. couriers around couriers, what couriers care about certainly is making money. And, you know, a part of making money is, is certainly the pricing set by the marketplace, but a part of it is like how frequent are your trips mm. and how dense they are. And so, okay. So, so that describes like what a, you know, what happens if your marketplace is mature and spinning or, or what could prevent it from getting spinning. But then what you need to do from there is you need to figure out, okay, Assuming I'm not, I'm not starting with, uh, super density, right? Uh, I'm not starting with super selection. I'm not starting with restaurants getting tons of orders, right? Okay. Which of these things can I subsidize? Right. And so very quickly, you know, you realize, okay, I can subsidize couriers. Um, because at the end of the day, couriers care about money. That's like the primary thing that's, you know, driving why people are showing up in their car. And so I can replicate to the restaurant that like rapid delivery time that they somewhat care about. Uh, I can subsidize my way into that for some period of time. Okay, what about restaurants? We realize, okay, you can't subsidize attention too much. Uh, and so what you can do is you can build excitement and you can build anticipation. But what we realize is you need to bring the restaurant and eater sides of the marketplace online at roughly the same time. So you can subsidize the courier side. You can build relationships on the restaurant side. You can keep those guys excited and engaged. And then you want to bring them all online at once at the same time you try to activate your eater base, right? And so then I can, again, I can subsidize an eater base by giving people lots of promos and coupons. That'll give the restaurants the orders they want. And now my, you know, restaurants are getting the orders they want. Couriers are now starting to get organic trips and not just kind of living on my guarantees and subsidies. And so now my marketplace, my flywheel is starting to spin. If I can keep that restaurant supply that I got engaged, maybe I get some word of mouth referrals between uh, between restaurants. That'll bring more restaurants. That means more selection. That means more eaters convert. That means more eaters order more frequently or tell their friends. And so now my flywheel is starting to spin, but it requires thinking about it, you know, very, very carefully about all three sides and then understanding where you're going to throw your money. I love it. And then where that value starts to take shape, this thing starts to kind of take a mind of its own, right? Like where it's starting, you're subsidizing less parts of it, I would, I would assume. Yeah, yeah. And that's, of course, Ty, that's always the goal, right? Is that's to get goal. out of the subsidy game. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I can kind of tell you've been thinking about this. We, we know that you're, you're starting something on your own, but you've obviously been thinking about how to get this, uh, get these flywheels cranking. Uh, it's awesome. That was a great insight. Yeah. And what do you mean by subsidies? Exactly. I know it depends on which side of the marketplace you're referring to, but subsidy is kind of like you help them out a bit. Like, and that could be in the form of like, Hey, I'm going to pay you a minimum wage just to like be on standby, like a retainer. Like, can you explain the subsidy part a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what the way I would think about, okay, so when a marketplace is mature, fully functioning, everyone's paying what should be the market clearing, paying or getting paid what should be the market clearing price for their service at a high liquidity marketplace, right? Means you go to the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul, someone offers you a shirt, you pay them that shirt. No one's helping you buy that shirt, right? And no one's giving the merchant money for just kind of like sitting in his booth trying to sell shirts all day long. Uh, but when you start a market, you know, when you start, uh, uh, when you start a marketplace, you may need to subsidize. So for something like, you know, you know, for, for a physical marketplace, you may give your initial, you know, your initial tenants may get lower rent initially, right? But with the digital marketplace, you know, so we would, 
if there are no deliveries for couriers, maybe we'll just say, hey, even if there's no deliveries, I'm going to ensure that you make X dollars per hour as long as you sit in your car available and take the deliveries that do come. Right. And so that's a subsidy that ensures that even in advance of having sufficient density, you can provide a really great delivery experience. But I think it's important to consider that subsidies given can be applied to any side of the marketplace. Uh, and so, you know, promos given to eaters, right, are, are, are a subsidy. We're saying, you know, long run, I'm hoping that you'll pay, you know, $18 for this meal, including delivery. But today I'm going to give it to you for 10. And so as you think about like, you know, because marketplaces tend to be managed, you know, each side of the marketplace, maybe managed by a different team, those those decisions are often being made in isolation. But ideally, there can be some synchronization where, hey, you know what, if I give enough promo money to my eaters, am I able to get out of the business of giving subsidies to my couriers because they'll actually get enough deliveries, right? And then I could build your business case ROI. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I guess on the topic of subsidies, then we had seen Uber would provide a lot of subsidies in, of a discounted ride to people, at least up here in the Northwest. It's it's expensive to take a take an Uber now. What what do you think's going on there? Yeah, I think Uber is having a uh, dramatic supply problem. I think anyone who is in a labor intensive business is having a supply problem. They may not call that at the local warehouse, uh, but they too have a supply problem. You know, it's a challenging, obviously coming out of the pandemic, we would expect ride sharing with something to become roaring back really fast. So either way, they were going to have to bring on a ton of drivers. But, you know, given the, given the kind of just how tight the labor market is, uh, I would guess that that is, that is, uh, you know, proving more expensive and problematic than anticipated. And so the market clearing price for a ride, right, is now uh, a lot higher uh, mm-hmm. than, than it may have been yeah. otherwise. And so if you're on the supply side, that makes sense, right? That's how you bring more people in. And if you have too much demand, that's how you bat away some of your excess demand as you price those guys out. Obviously, if you're the marketplace operator, that's, that's probably not going to be the optimal structure. There's some balance yeah. that will be a little bit better. Yeah. And I guess you have a choice at that point. Do we have low price or lower price rides that, you know, but it makes the drivers not so happy because their their hourly goes from $20 on average to maybe 12 right? Or do we keep that hourly high? But the demand now is unhappy. It, it, that marketplace dynamics is, seems really hard. You, you have to make a hard choice of a commitment. Yeah. So what's it, it, no? That that's a great point, and I'm glad you brought that up. What is interesting about the ride sharing is that using surge, which I know everyone hates, you actually are able to discover what the market clearing price is, and in a lot of ways, it is less easy. I'm going to take a lot of flack for this, but it is it is harder for Uber to influence driver earnings than people think. Uh, and the reason is this. First of all, the barriers to entry to becoming a driver on the Uber platform are extremely low. You need to have a car and you need to have a driver's license, right? That describes a very large portion of the U.S. population. So what happens, what you see happen in Uber markets is, let's say Uber charges a really, let's say Uber sets a really high fare price, right? So a couple things will happen. One, maybe fewer riders will take rides. Right. And then second of all, maybe while that's happening, while rider behavior is falling off, a bunch of drivers will sign up in anticipation of these really lucrative fares. But then what ends up happening is there there are more, there's more, there's too much supply. There's more drivers than there are rides. And so even though the per fare price is extremely high, what you see is a lot of these drivers sit around idle. Their hourly earning may drop through the floor uh, and then they will churn out on their own. 
Uh, and then as that, as they churn out, now there's the same number of rides, fewer supply. And so hourly earnings start to creep back up to their market clearing price. On the other extreme, if Uber cuts prices to a place that's way too low, where you know drivers aren't 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 making as much as they want, maybe even if they're fully busy, right? Guys going from trip to trip to trip mm-hmm. to trip to trip, but he's still not making his his target earnings. Then he's going to churn off too, right? And then now you're going to have this problem where you've got lots of people trying to ride and not enough drivers to take them around, and then that automatically corrects by a surge because you know the algorithm's design. Anytime there's more riders than there are drivers, then it just automatically increases the price. And so then that will, you know, one, decrease the amount of supply, I mean, the amount of demand potentially, but also increase your driver earnings. And so, you know, you can end up in a place and this is what this is where you do try to price correctly, because riders hate that kind of constant pricing variability. You don't want to always be guessing how much it costs to go home. You kind of want to have a set price. Mm -hmm. And so you want to set your pricing in a way where surge is at, you know, a decent there's some percentage of trips are being surged. That's good. Uh, but not such a high percentage that people are constantly guessing what it's going to cost to go somewhere. Hey, hey, wasn't that awesome? Hope you're enjoying it so far. Yeah, and you better get ready because we didn't end the conversation there. So stay tuned for part two of this striking conversation. More mayhem coming. More mayhem coming.